Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. This time, as the Byline Times hits the newsstands at last, we'll be hearing about a Royal Megxit scandal, which is in that first ever newsstand edition of the Byline Times. It's the true and exclusive story of why King Charles withdrew royal protection and £700,000 in funding from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. The story is more than royal tittle-tattle. It reveals the links between the palace and the Sun newspaper, especially its former executive editor, Dan Wotton. Let's welcome then the Byline Times editor, Hadid Matharu, and executive editor, Peter Jukes. And firstly, congratulations both. How wonderful to have the Byline Times on proper newsstands at last. It's funny, isn't it? It has been printed for two and a half years, but we're still referred to sometimes by some nefarious actors as a left-wing blog. We have been a newspaper, but it does make a huge difference, doesn't it? That you don't get it mailed through your door. It's a closed list, as it were. It's there for everybody to see at a good news agent near you, WH Smith and Waitrose. Not at all Waitrose, by the way. It's a select number of stores for this first month. And not at all WH Smith, though, most big ones. And if you can't find a copy, go to customer services and say, where is it? If they say they sold out, which they have, by the way, in numerous stores, say, can you order in some more? I've been blown away by the response of the public that I've seen. As you will know, our Twitter account has always been a very meaningful way for us to connect with our supporters and our readers. And just over the weekend, the number of people buying a copy and taking a picture and posting it online. I've really been blown away. And I think it really speaks to that sense of people being able to do something. It's so easy for us to become cynical, for us to feel passive, to feel that nothing is ever going to change, that the state of affairs in Britain and around the world is so concerning. And I think just that notion that we can go out actively and choose that newspaper over the others that are next to it on the newsstand. I think there's something pretty powerful by that, but just want to thank the public. And it's been so moving to see how everyone has supported the launch in retail of Byline Times. Like a lot of readers of the Byline Times, I came to it online. And I think it is quite difficult sometimes for people to get their head around the fact that the Byline Times is a newspaper because we've got such a fantastic online offering at bylinetimes.com. There's Byline Supplement as well. There's this podcast, but all of those are underpinned by subscribers to the print edition. And right from the start, I know that in your conception of it, the idea of having a traditional analogue version of Byline Times has been a really important part of the vision. It's interesting. It is partly... Obviously, that move to vinyl. I'm sure you, Adrian, as a great follower of pop music from the 70s onwards, still love your old vinyl because there's something about analogue. I remember my mother had a recording of Gigli, the great tenor singing, Mi Paro Dear Encore. Sorry, I'm being pretentious here now, but it's a lovely, lovely song from the Pearl Fisherman. And it was so great with the scratches because it was analogue. You just scratch on a DVD, you throw it away. So there's partly that vinyl movement. Let's go back to a thing, not just electrons, atoms. But I think here's the other thing. This is all the hard work Hardy does. When you read a piece on bylinetimes.com or byline supplement, 
you don't see it arrayed with other pieces, maybe embedded profile. But what Hardy worked so hard at, and doubly hard, because we did a 68-page edition for the new format, as well as the old 40-page edition for A3 tabloid size, was putting together a story. Each page faces a certain way. You turn over to the next one for a good reason. And there's something incredibly non-linear about it, especially a magazine. I've got it in my hand here. You can flick through it. You can't turn over the side of the page of a web page. People always say, you know, video killed the radio star. When cinema came along, it destroyed theater. When television came along, it destroyed cinema. And it doesn't, these forms still exist. But to have it all bound together, literally bound, this one has staples to it, means there's a story there. And as Hardeep says, there's something about the way we've told the story with great helpers like yourself who joined this agent when we were a scrappy little startup with no rep at all. The underlying that binding together is a kind of commitment to truth and a kind of sense of belief in other people and their goodness. Hardeep, what particular challenge did it give you as editor? I know that, of course, in the online versions of Byline Times, you can't print everything that you would like, but you do have leeway online, maybe an extra 100 words here, maybe an extra 100 words there. With print, it's hard and fast, isn't it? (laughs) You, You can't run over a line because the word will be lost. Absolutely. Now, I always remember something that one of my colleagues said to me in the local newsroom that I worked on when I was a little cub reporter for the Epsom Guardian. It was a weekly print newspaper and all the focus was on that rather than online at that time. And I was editing my first edition of it when my editor was away and I was a bit daunted by it. And my colleague said, but Hardeep, you know, how you select the stories, how you look at what you're presenting to your readers, it's all about being clear on what's the story behind why we're telling these particular stories. And I've never forgotten that. It really guides me to this day. What is the wider issue that we're trying to bring to light? How does it relate to another element that we're saying is important enough to be in print in this 68-page edition? And I think it's that clarity about our writers, about our journalists, about the editors, knowing exactly what is it that we're trying to tell the reader is important for them to know so they can make up their own minds. I print really makes you concentrate on knowing the answers to that. And as Peter said, I think it's been a real pleasure to produce something very much with this new retail version that I hope people will be able to keep for a whole month. I hope they'll turn over the pages and highlight things and see it as something that's talking directly to them, which they can carry around and have a sense that it's for them, it's for the readers. And will that newsstand version be identical to the version that subscribers to Byline Times get? Yeah, actually, as of next month, the next edition, we're moving towards having our news periodical magazine format will be available both to subscribers and people who want to pick it up in the shops. They'll be identical going forward. Part of the sort of chaos of it was the printers who did the magazine format. It's not a magazine, it's a news periodical, let's be clear. Not a common format in the UK, but quite a common one in America. They couldn't print all the 15, 16,000 of the mail-out version. But next month, they will. And so now, we were before retail about 33,000 subscribers. 
there's 10,012 now. We have to reprint another 2,000, I think, tomorrow. So if they all sell are 45,000 subscribers. And obviously with a print edition. So of the 33, 33 get the digital edition and about 15 get print and digital. Now with the entire print load, we have a distribution of 35, 40,000. And of course, you can estimate one, one and a half, two times the readers for that. So that's quite an important impact because I mean, people used to ask me this when I went from theatre to television. Oh, are you selling out? Aren't you going to television? It's the money. And I said, no, it's not the money. It wasn't that much more money. It's impact. Is that if I believe in this idea, if I believe in this story, if I believe in this drama, I want to get it to more people. I don't want it to be a niche thing. Hopefully, you know, it costs at the beginning to set out into retail. You have to buy your slots. It's more expensive. The commercial mission is only to give it more impact. And I must say this about subscribers. Obviously, it is brilliant that we get all our income every year from people paying for it. And that gives an autonomy and independence that if you're GB News reliant on an oligarch, or indeed probably the Telegraph reliant on an oligarch, or to a certain extent now uh, the Sun, they lose money, but they're reliant on a rich person to fund it. The fact we're reliant on many thousands, tens of thousands of mini oligarchs is not just financial. It is also exactly as Hardeep says is who you writing for and two who's in charge it's not some charity or foundation somewhere not some oligarch it's what the readers want what the readers deserve and i think that is a recipe for some kind of accountability and honesty as part of a come on as it were to new readers the new stand edition has this fantastic story about harry and Meghan, the duke and duchess of sussex the reasons why King Charles decided effectively to cut them off from the royal family. Just talk me through that. And as stress, this is not a tittle-tattle story, is it, Peter? It's it's about the links between the palace, between Britain's most popular tabloid, or Britain's traditionally most popular tabloid anyway, and some of the nefarious activities that have gone on between them. Yes, it's much more in the line of the phone hacking trial kind of story in that where this all begins three years ago is a whistleblower, and it turns out to be more than one whistleblower from the sun, noticing that payments had gone to the partner of a public official in the palace. Now, half the phone hacking trial wasn't about phone hacking. It was about payments to public officials in that the Sun was paying millions, we calculated millions to police officers, MOD officials, prison officers for stories, which was deemed illegal under misconduct in public office. And about 40 or so public officials were sentenced and prosecuted on that basis. Only one journalist pleaded guilty because it's very difficult to prove a journalist was guilty of misconduct in public office because they're not, but the charge was abetting. But anyway, that's where it all began with some emails which were leaked to Dan Evans three years ago, and he started investigating. He did find that around that time, there were stories about Meghan and Dan Wooden was in charge, but it hadn't really covered wars before. In fact, it'd be very anti-will. Suddenly around the time these payments are made, he starts writing and, you know, carries on in a very aggressive way about Meghan. He came up with a rather offensive term, Mexic, because obviously we quote market. It wasn't Mexic, it was Sussexit, if you like. And the attempt to blame her for everything is part of this hatred that we also write about on Byline Times. So Dan did some asking around, investigating around, 
And this obviously launched a big inquiry at the palace, including an initial police inquiry by Neil Basu, because this was prima facie potentially breaking the law, i.e. a public official. The Wesselboer wouldn't come forward, so they couldn't launch a proper police inquiry. They want to remain anonymous. But it was ascertained that the partner of Christian Jones, who was a palace PR person, all the Sussex and the Cambridges, Will and Kate, his partner had received payments for a Meghan story, which he said was for another Meghan, right? That was kind of buried away in invest- two investigations in the palace. The official involved said he didn't know, had only met Dan Wharton peripherally a couple of times through his partner. And it all kind of went to nowhere. But obviously, Prince Harry got hold of this. He wanted to launch legal action against the son for this intrusion on his privacy, potential misdemeanor of some sort, and named this official in a legal letter to the son. The palace didn't want him to do this. They got him to remove the name from his letter for action, hoping that he would come in line, that this would make him realize he had to be inside the family. He refused to remove the name. And so this is what article alleges. He was cut off from the sanguinary agreement, which agreed to fund him, even though he's more distant from the family. And that led to them leaving the country permanently. Now, as you can see, hopefully I've told it, Adrian, this is not a story about world tittle-tattle. It's, as Hardy writes brilliantly about, it's about potential law-breaking. It is about deals done in private to hide two huge institutions, including the press, and the palace from public accountability and scrutiny. It's very much the opposite of private tittle-tattle, and that's in the public interest. We knew that the press had an inordinate power revolving door into number 10. Dominic Cummings said that Boris Johnson called the Telegraph his real boss. We knew that. We knew that sort of influence on the police 10 years ago, how they could sort of appoint and sort of promote, in a way, in the papers, certain people for commissioner and hire them when they leave to write columns. But I think this proximity to the palace, this so-called stable organisation, our head of state, supposed to provide continuity for us, is quite shocking. Wouldn't you agree, Hardy? Yeah, I think this wider story is about the forces that shape us. In Britain, the country we are right now, that is shaped a large extent, I would say, by our press, because we've had a merger, as we've talked about many times, between the political media class in this country, there's a revolving door between the offices of The Spectator and Number 10 Downing Street, often getting the private interests of wealthy offshore proprietors being advanced through newspapers rather than the public interest. So the media, especially still, I would say, our tabloid press in terms of setting the agenda of the discourse of this country is very much shaping what's happening in society and politics in Britain. But there's another aspect which we don't really talk about much, but which does shape the kind of country we are, which is our monarchy. We're a constitutional monarchy in this country. Our head of state is King Charles. And it sets the tone for the country, even if we're not consciously aware of it in our day-to-day lives. It's about hierarchy, continuity, duty, tradition. It's also about inequality. It's about imperialism. All of these notions are with us and tell us something about the kind of country we live in and our place within it. And I think this toxic codependency between one establishment institution, our monarchy, which hardly receives any real scrutiny, and another establishment institution, our 
press, which hardly receives any scrutiny, and their mutual dependence on each other is really significant in terms of how we see ourselves as a country and where power really lies. And for me, that was always the bigger story we were trying to tell. We're always trying to tease apart how did Britain get to the point it's in now? And so I would argue on a personal level as well why I was very keen for this to lead our first retail edition. It's because many people like me, young people, people of colour, people who have grown up in Britain and have embraced the diverse nation full of opportunities there is, while still recognising all of the structural and cultural problems that it still has to confront. There are huge numbers of people like me who will feel that we are going backwards, we're retreating into Little England, and that country that we personally identify with, this outward-looking nation that was the 2012 Olympics and Harry and Meghan were sort of symbolic of, we're, we're going back on that. We're not moving with the times. We're moving back into Little England. And that is the wider story I want to tell. It's a generational story. It's about our identity as a country. And even though this is a significant and an important story, it has had remarkably little take up elsewhere in the media. I say remarkably little. Of course, those of us who are veterans of this kind of story will know that the mainstream media are extremely good at not reporting on their own alleged misdemeanours. But it was picked up by Murdoch's paper in the United States, the New York Post. So credit to them for that. And it's created ripple certainly online. And as good journalist, Peter, I know that the proper right of replies will have gone in to the palace, to Dan Wooten, and so on. In fairness, what have they had to say? So Christian Jones says he was not involved in any kind of leak. By the way, we don't know that he was. All we know is that a leak happened and two Dan Wooten payments were paid at that time. We don't know absolutely they're causing. And Christian Jones may have inadvertently leaked, but certainly the evidence there is it was the investigation didn't go quite far enough in that he said he didn't know Dan Wooden, and we have pictures of, of my best friends at a special 36th birthday party celebration, £2,000 ahead. We have written to them. They have replied. They're saying, as they said before, well, we didn't leak anything. Dan Wooden hasn't replied. The palace, we dealt with the palace as well, who said they felt it was a full and intensive investigation. Dan Wooden, as I said, his laws have not replied, and I think that is the reason that you don't get much coverage. One, is always very aggressive, managed to take down a completely legitimate story that police have lost by the Met. And also, most importantly, beyond the palace, which is often a kind of target-rich environment for the tabloid press, you imagine I'd be leaping all over this, is that the source of this story, Dan Wooden, worked for The Sun, worked for The Mail, worked for GB News, worked for ITV. And so there's a lot of kind of Chariness, you know, caution. And this speaks to that problem, which Hardy alerted to us. It's a very small world, the British media scene. And also, there has been historic wrongdoing. Now, Dan Wooden wasn't involved in phone hacking, as far as I know, and hasn't denied using alter egos, Martin Browning and Maria Joseph. So, who spoke to those characters? I know several people who got approached by those characters asking for saucy videos. There is a whole merchant and a compromise, and also pure commercial rivalry, because 
It's true of many other stories that unless you're in that key cartel, if a small organization breaks the stories, they don't have the material. They don't have the underlying peer. We've exhaustively been through all our witnesses, their affidavits and the evidence. You know, we have exhaustively after three years investigations. And they're also a little bit resentful at giving any credit to an upstart organization, which is very avid and criticized in other places. So look, it's been followed up by Parry Match. I wouldn't be surprised you find some more in-depth follow-ups later. In some ways, it's horrible. People don't follow up. In other ways, it makes us special. And that's what we are set out to do, what the papers don't say. For whatever reason, either caution or complicity, to cover those stories, which with big media organizations with a lot at stake reputationally and commercially, they are part of the system. We're being very successful in retail, but we don't want to be part of that system. And long may it stay that way. The only thing I'd add is, as well as that cover story, we have 60-odd other pages in the retail edition, which I hope readers will find illuminating. I love the fact that we have in this one edition a piece by the Labour MP, Chris Bryant, Parliament's only Green MP, Caroline Lucas, and the former Conservative Attorney General, Dominic Grieve, all in one newspaper, all talking about the current state of affairs. We have our regular columnist, Peter Oborn, who worked for The Telegraph, The Mail and The Spectator, and still says that Johnson was a good editor that he enjoyed working with under The Spectator. And we also have Sonia Pannell, also in our pages, who worked with Johnson at The Telegraph and says she felt crushed by working with him. So it really is a paper where we're independent, we don't want to tell readers what to think. We want them to be informed so they can make up their own minds. Funded by our readers, we're focused on investigative journalism. That's what Britain needs to get back to. And so for the first time this decade, Britain has a new newspaper and it deserves it. Brilliant stuff, Hardeep. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. I'm very proud to be part of it too. Delighted to be so. So just a reminder, the Byline Times is now available at newsstands, if you can't see it, ask for it, demand that they stock it. This podcast, though, is funded not only by that, but by subscriptions to the Byline Times, the brilliant monthly newspaper that sometimes pops through your letterbox as well. So if you don't want to buy it on the newsstand, if you want to make sure that you get a copy, do make sure that you subscribe. Head over to bylinetimes.com to take out a subscription. That's at bylinetimes.com. This episode was produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham. It is a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. Hardy, Peter, thanks very much indeed. Cheers now. <laughs>